Again, welcome. It's good to see you and welcome to Freedom. Uh, Fourth of July week is upon us and it feels like it outside. Uh, let me say a word of welcome to uh, those of you who are joining us online. We're always truly uh, honored to have you be a part of worship in that way, whether it's live on Sunday morning or catching it later in the week. Thanks for worshiping with us at Freedom Church. We are in a series right now. We're nearing the completion of a series uh, entitled So Much More. We've been marching through the book of Ephesians for several weeks. If you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, where we're going to be today. If, if you haven't been here in this series, the whole book of Ephesians has been such a powerful reminder of how God, first of all, has so much more love for us, so much more power for us, so much more of a calling, an identity, and a plan for our lives than we had ever dared to dream or imagine. And we we saw that in the first three chapters. And then once you start moving into the second half of the letter, uh, you discover that this so much more spills over now into our daily lives and how we relate to the people around us and how God has so much more in store for, for those things, for the uh, the relationships that define the quality of our lives. And what we're going to look at today really is going to be a, a major determining factor for whether the relationships that we deal with day in and day out end up being the so much more or so much less than what God designed them for. And the passage that we're going to look at today as I weeks and weeks ago began preparing and sort of discerning uh, what passage we're going to tackle on what week, I normally would have split this up into like three different Sundays, what we're going to look at today, and don't start getting nervous thinking, oh goodness, we're going to get three hours of preaching today. You're not, I promise. But uh, what we're about to read, you're probably going to think the same thing that I did when I first realized I'm supposed to tackle this in one week, like, that. well, this is three unrelated topics. This is uh, three different messages, but you'll see that there's one theme that ties all three of these together as we're going to, to look at the issue of learning to lead like Jesus. And this is the theme that ties these all together. As we see what that looks like for a husband and wife, what this looks like in the home for parents with their kids, and what this looks like uh, where we work between a, a boss, a supervisor, and the people that we work with. And, of course, the principles that we're going to discern spill over into virtually every relationship. It certainly applies within a church and a ministry team and so many other places. And so uh, we're going to begin... In uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 21, uh, it's funny how sometimes we'll do this, and if your Bible looks like mine, you may look at it and say, well, we should be starting in verse 22 because we've got all these section breaks, and the husband and wife thing starts in verse 22. Well, remember, Paul didn't put that there. Some editors later said, well, let's divide it up this way. Verse 21 is, is key to uh, what we're going to look at today. And before I begin reading, I'm just going to tell you, not that this is worth a lot to you, but as I was wrestling with... How do these three things tie together if I'm supposed to, to teach these together? And I heard a fact that, for me, just made it sort of click and come together. And it was just it was a simple thing. It was uh, the fact that uh, Gallup polls had done a survey of people who have quit their jobs over the years and just asked more than a million people the question, why did you quit your job? And the overwhelming number one response that they got was because of my boss. It wasn't that they hated their company. It wasn't that they hated what they did. It wasn't that they hated their hours or their compensation. The number one answer was, I hated having to work under my supervisor. It was my boss that made my job so miserable. And the thing that clicked for me when I heard that, it's funny, the Holy Spirit will use different things to get our attention. And it was like in that moment the Holy Spirit said, that's the problem. People don't know how to lead today. People have never been trained in how to lead today. They don't know how to lead in the workplace. They don't know how to lead as parents. They don't know how to lead in a marriage. They've never been trained in how to lead. And I want to just ask you that question. Who ever taught you, I mean truly taught you, how to be a leader? I think for most of us we'd go, ah, I don't think anybody devoted any time to this. And it's such a big deal because we're all called to lead. Every year the little group of guys that I'll take through for that year in discipleship, we dedicate three months of the year to learning to lead, the whole thing of leadership development. This is such a big deal. So you're going to get it in one day. You're going to get it in one hour. So we're, we're going to dive into this passage now. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. 
He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. And I just sense by the time we get to this point that there's sort of a low, silent, collective groan among a lot of of ladies who are going, oh, it's going to be that sermon. Let me just say, ladies, don't even sweat it for a moment. You're going to be glad that you came today because there's not going to be anything heavy or oppressive in what I'm about to share with you. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, that is, the scriptures. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. And now, as we move into chapter 2, he shifts gears a bit. Now he's going to focus his attention on on the relationship of parents to children. And he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life in the land. And fathers, do not stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And now he's going to shift gears again. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart. As you would Christ. Let me call time out for just a second here and point out. Some people have foolishly claimed that because of teachings like what Paul writes about here in Ephesians 6, that Christianity somehow endorses slavery, and that's absolute, utter foolishness. It never does any such thing. Paul is simply writing into a, a situation where around the globe the whole problem of slavery exists. And he realizes he's not going to abolish that with the letter that he's writing and understanding that many of the people who receive his letter are either slaves or they're slave owners. And so to those people, whichever end of that they land on, he says, let me tell you how to behave as a follower of Jesus in whatever setting that you're in. So he's not endorsing slavery. If Paul were writing in the 21st century, he wouldn't be writing to slaves and masters. He'd be writing to employers and employees. And so the same principles apply. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now that's... That's a lot, but the point that we're going to make in covering all that territory today is the principles that we're going to look at apply to all of these kinds of relationships. Now, what I want to do in the the time that we have remaining is, first of all, I want to just share with you three broad principles about leadership and learning to lead like Jesus, and then we're going to press into six very specific things that define how you relate to people and that are going to force us to look in the mirror and say, what kind of leader am I and am I leading like Jesus? Now, my starting point is this. I am convinced, and I I don't think it's difficult to make the case, that Jesus is absolutely the greatest leader that the world has ever known. There's never been anybody better at leadership, and it's pretty easy to defend that statement. I mean, stop and think about it. He was only on earth physically for... 33 and a half years, during the time that he was here, he never held political office, he never led an army, he never fought a physical battle, he never wrote any books, we don't know of anything, that if he ever wrote anything down, we don't still have it in hand. He never traveled outside of just what looks like a little pinpoint on the globe. I mean, Israel and just a little bit into Egypt is as far as he ever traveled, and in spite of these things, and in spite of the fact that he was only here for such a short span of time, by the end of the first century, it is estimated that 4% of the people on the whole planet had become followers of Jesus. 
And now here we are almost 2,000 years later, and one-third of the population of the planet, far more than 2 billion people, declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. Nobody else comes in as a close second. Jesus is head and shoulders the greatest leader that the world has ever known. He is our model for how to lead. And so from Paul's words and the, the example and the, the lips of Jesus today, we're going to look at how to lead like Jesus and all these different relationships that we're put into. So three general principles that I, I want to share with you is just a starting point. The first one is this, that everyone should answer to someone and should lead someone, regardless of your personality type. Regardless of whether you're a type A and you're a natural leader or if you're an introvert and, and you're a natural follower, everybody's called to lead and to follow. He, he begins in verse 21 by reminding us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're, if we're all submitting to one another, then it's a given. We're all going to be in positions where we lead others and we're all going to be in positions where we need to follow others. Agreed? Now, we're talking about leadership today, so let, let's begin by getting clear about what leadership is and is not. Leadership is not about power and control. Let me say that again. Leadership is not about power and control. What leadership is about is about leveraging influence and trust in the lives of the people around us so that it impacts how they think, what they believe, and how they behave. I'll say that again. Leadership is about leveraging influence and trust in the lives of people around us so that it shapes how they think, what they believe, and how they behave. And we're all called to do that. I mean, Jesus says to every one of his followers, go and make disciples. The clear implication is you're going to have to lead others. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. If you're going to make disciples, you're going to have to be a leader. So everybody needs to be leading someone, and everybody needs to be following someone and under someone. There's always this hierarchy in the kingdom of God, which really leads to the second principle. Let me just go ahead and jump into that. And it is this, that submission is a key to protection and blessing in God's kingdom. We just don't like the word submit, do we? I mean, any of us. Now, nobody wants to hear somebody else say, you need to submit. That just, ooh, that goes against us. We don't like that. But it's important for us to understand that everything in the kingdom of God happens along a chain of authority. Everything. Everything is organized along a chain of authority. Now, our problem is we see the whole idea of leadership, authority, and submission all get so twisted into something that it's never intended to be in the kingdom. So we get afraid of it, and we, we, we picture some perverted version of that where people get used and, and mistreated and abused, and that's not at all what the Lord is blessing. But you've got to understand, regardless of how it's been perverted along the way, if you want to be in a position of protection... And a blessing, you've got to find your place in God's chain of authority. Because that's the place that you're going to experience the direct flow of the good things that God wants to pour into your life and the power and authority that He has for you. And it's going to position you for wonderful security being in such a place of protection. So in the passage that we just read, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them as you would serve Christ. Now, again, at a, at a real worldly level, there's a part of us that wants to push back from that. and go, I don't like that. So if I'm a wife, does that mean I've got to obey my husband? He's in control of me. He gets to tell me what to do. Is that what defines our relationship? Not at all. Not, not if the Lord himself is our example. Not if Scripture is our guide. That's not what it's going to look like at all. The, the two clearest things that should define for us how a husband and wife relate around this teaching are what happens within the Godhead and what happens in Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church? And that's exactly what Paul points to in Ephesians 5. Let's consider both of those for a moment. Within the Godhead, there is order. 
Now let's just remind ourselves, because this is the most fundamental single teaching in all of Christianity, is that we serve one God who eternally exists as three persons. He is always, at every moment in time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the great mystery of Christian faith, how one God is three persons. He is that. They are all equally God. They're equally divine. They're equally good. They're equally powerful. But they are three persons. Three different persons in one Godhead. But within that, there is order. The Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus submit themselves to God as Father. It's a fact. Jesus is always operating in submission to his Father. Is it because the Father is older? Nope. They both are eternally existent. Is it because the Father is more God than Jesus? Nope. Jesus is completely divine. Does the Father have more power than Jesus? Nope. Jesus holds just as much power as the Father. So why does Jesus submit to the Father? Because there is order in all things in the kingdom of God. Does that mean that the Father controls the Son and micromanages the Son? Not at all. In fact, what the Scripture reveals is that the Father has commissioned the Son, the Lord Jesus, to come into time and history in such a way that it is His mission now to set everything back in order. Things were in order in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Genesis 3. When mankind sinned, everything got out of order and chaos ensued. And from that moment forward, Jesus talks about this in in, uh, John's Gospel. He said, from that point forward, my father works, and he works even until today, and I too work. Jesus is the one sent by the Father to restore order in all things and to bring all things in submission to him. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, when that work is completely finished, when everything in the universe submits itself to God and everything that refuses has been vanished, banished to a a, a lake of fire so that all that remains is completely yielded to God. The kingdom of God has fully arrived. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, at that point, Jesus will then take everything and present them back to God the Father and say, Sir, it is back in order and it is yours. Is Jesus any less God than the Father? Oh, no, he's not. He's fully God. He's operating on mission from the Father, and the Father's not micromanaging that. Jesus has full authority to do all of those things, and it is his pleasure to do that in partnership with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. We see this same type of of order in that Jesus is the head of his bride, the church. How does Jesus relate to the church? Does he run around saying, you're mine, you better submit to me. I'm going to give you orders for every part of the day, and you better do what I say. I'm going to force my will on you. That's not how Jesus relates to his bride. He loves his bride. He protects his bride. He brings out the best in us. Does he have direction for us? He absolutely does. But you tell me how many days in the last week did Jesus show up and force his will on you? My guess is the answer is zero. He invites us to move in partnership with him in working out his plan for our lives and our families and for the world around us. It's a partnership, but where we are in submission to him. That's the picture of how this thing is supposed to work. And now that becomes for us a picture of how a husband and wife operate, how parents and children, how supervisors and employees work together. We've just got to get over the idea of being under someone. Everybody's called to be under someone's authority. Because to be under someone doesn't mean, oh, I've got to do everything that they say. I've got to obey them. They're going to get to control me. Think of it more in terms like this. If we want to be technical, we're all under the church building today, aren't we? It's wrapped all around us. Is there anybody here today that's just ticked off that you are under the church building? No. The fact of the matter is, nobody's going, I don't like this. It's limiting me. We can't play soccer in here. We can't run a marathon in here. We're so limited because we're under the church building. No, the truth of the matter is, every one of us is going, thank you, Jesus, that we got this building over us. I'm not going to get a sunburn sitting in church today. 
Nobody's going to have a heat stroke. We might do it if we met out in the parking lot because it's going to be hot as all get out out there today. We understand by being under the church, what that means for us is just, man, we have a protected place to be the church. The building's going to absorb all that heat and all that sunshine. And by being under what we're under, we, we get to be in a safe, cool, protected place where now we can function as the church, the worshiping community of, of faith here today. And that's a good thing. When we get this thing of relationships right... We're not going to resent being under someone because we realize being under somebody doesn't mean that they get to control and micromanage us. It means that they provide for us a place of security where we're protected and where we get to be everything we were designed to be. You see, the weight falls on the one who is over to provide that for the one that they cover. So it's a blessing for us to be under someone. The most vulnerable and least blessable, if we can use that as a word, people are those who refuse to submit to anyone. Think about it. The one who says, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to have anybody over me. They are in the most unprotected place because when you think of it in terms of just these umbrellas of protection that God brings into our lives, the person who's just the rebel, they're just that free spirit, they're not going to submit to anyone. Well, they step out from under every umbrella of protection that God had for them. There's nothing over them. God provides so many different levels for us. He says we're to be under those in authority in the government. We're within the church. We're to be under the umbrella of, of the covering of the elder's authority, of a, of a bishop's authority. You have a covering here. Me and the other elders get to provide a covering for you within the family. A husband provides a covering for his wife. Parents provide a covering for their children. An employer is to provide a covering for those who, who's under them. A ministry leader provides a covering for those in their small group or within their ministry team. So boy, when you start thinking in terms of all of these different potential coverings that you've got for you, to get in line with God's chain of authority just guarantees that you've got all these people in a, in a position to cover you. And you may say, well, well, how does that even work out? Well, some of it you really have to look into it to appreciate, but here's one of the things that it does for you. I, I mean, just think in terms of within the church. When you have to deal with something where you're spiritually under attack, guess who one of the people is or one of the groups of people are who gets to stand with you with a particular authority? Your pastor and elders. You, you are in our chain of authority. So when we stand with you and we take authority over the enemy because you and your family are under attack, when we speak with you to the enemy, it's like Jesus has shown up and is speaking. When you're talking and when we're talking, Jesus is talking because we are in that chain of command. It's just like in the military. Whenever somebody is a butter bar second lieutenant, but they're under the chain of authority of their first lieutenant and their captain and their major, the lieutenant colonel, their colonel, their general... Whenever anybody above them steps into a situation with them to support them, it is as if the, the commander-in-chief himself were there because they are in line with everyone in that chain. It's a place of protection and it's a place of blessing. Are you with me on that? That makes sense? Moving on to the third principle, and it's very simply this. It is not difficult to submit to a person who leads like Jesus. Would you agree? That's not a hard thing when somebody leads like Jesus. Verse 23 of, of Ephesians 5, Paul said this, The husband provides leadership. Everybody say leadership. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by what? By cherishing. Now, the three different passages that we read today, they speak to both sides of a relationship. Each of those passages does. It speaks to the husband and the wife, to the parents and the children to the boss and the employees the owner and the, the slaves the rest of what I'm going to say today is going to only address one half of each of those equations the person who is to provide the covering the person who is called to lead and the reason that today I'm going to focus on that is one I don't have time to cover both but two if we get that one right the second half is going to fall into place so much more easily. The, the hard thing is to just be the, the person who submits to another 
and out of that to get the person in authority to lead like Jesus. If we can get people to lead like Jesus, it becomes very natural for other people to want to follow and get on board with that. So every one of us are called to be leaders. We want to press into what it means to lead like Jesus. Now, I think we all understand the old adage and how true it is. If you want to test a person's character, give them power. Because you, you give most people power, you're going to discover things about them that you did not know. Because they start to act goofy. You, somebody who's never really had power, and, and you suddenly give them power. And it's funny the different ways that that will come out. I mean, in American culture, in modern culture, just giving people a truckload of money suddenly gives them a lot of power. Have you ever noticed whenever that happens to somebody, they, they go from just you know being a very ordinary middle-class citizen to suddenly they're a gazillionaire because they won the lottery or somebody died or something, and now they've got lots of money. And suddenly that brings with it a certain amount of influence and power, and they suddenly begin to behave differently. You start seeing things that you'd never seen in them before. It's just funny. All the different ways you give somebody power, and it begins to to impact how they relate to others. It becomes a test of our character. Now, we just need to understand about ourselves. When you are put in a position of leadership, when you've been given influence and power, it usually does not immediately bring out our strengths. Instead, what it usually does is bring out our insecurities. We're in a new position. Other people are looking to us. We're not accustomed to that. That, that weirds us out. It freaks us out. We, we feel insecure about that. And when we feel insecure, usually what will manifest is some of the most unhealthy behaviors that we've ever done. We'll begin to behave like an insecure leader. And insecure people will do all kinds of, of unhealthy things. We'll, we'll suddenly become controlling a micromanager. We're, we're suddenly defensive. We're suddenly blaming other people. And we become this person that people don't want to be around and they don't want to submit to and they don't want to have leading them. And that's not who we want to be and it's not who they want to be around. And yet for many of us, it's what we have evolved into in the different leadership roles that we've been thrust into in our marriages, in our families, in the workplace, in the church. And so what we want to do today is blow some of those things up and press into what does a person who leads like Jesus, what does that really look like? And so what I'm going to do now, with the remaining time that we have, I want to give you six very specific examples that are, are going to be a contrast between what a worldly leader would do in that situation and what a, a person who leads like Jesus would do, what defines them. And so to, to just try and say this in the simplest terms, I'm going to use one word to sum up the worldly version and it's just going to be the word boss. But I don't want you to immediately always run to the place of employment, the place where you work. It applies there. But what we're going to talk about, it equally applies in a marriage or a romantic relationship or parents and kids or in a ministry uh, setting. It, it applies to all of those. But it's just so cumbersome to try and say the husband, father, mother, pastor, employer. We're just going to roll that all together as the boss versus the leader. You with me? That's going to be the contrast. When we say leader, we mean lead like Jesus. When we say boss, we mean the worldly version of, of how to lead. So first of all, first contrast, bosses instill fear, but leaders inspire confidence. I'll say that again. Bosses instill and work through fear, but leaders inspire confidence. Have you ever been in a relationship, whether it's the workplace or home or church or whatever, where the person that you were to serve under and with, where fear was the thing that they used, that was the tool that they used, and, and really the defining thing in the relationship was you were just always afraid of messing up, always afraid of how they would respond, how they would look at you, how they would treat you if you messed up. Because it's such an unpleasant place to be. And some of you grew up in households where fear was the, the driving factor. It, it may have just been fear of disappointing a parent. And, and a lot of different behaviors can lead us to a response of fear. I mean, it may be an explosive parent or it may just be the parent who, you know, if you disappoint me, I may not blow up at you, but I'm going to let you know how disappointed I am. 
and I, I'm now going to withdraw you know, my approval from you. So you just operate where fear is the driving force here. When fear is the driving force, it creates insecurity in us. If I'm under somebody and they're using, always using fear, well, now I, I get to the point I'm crippled and I'm afraid to take any initiative and try anything new because I just don't want to screw up. I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to unleash their anger or their disappointment or whatever. And so we don't initiate anything where fear is the driving force. But that's never how Jesus operated. Jesus always operates from a position of wanting to instill confidence and bring out the best in us. Paul says in verse 26, Jesus' words evoke her beauty. Talking about the church, it evokes our beauty. And everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. So you see, when we lead like Jesus in the home, in the workplace, wherever we are, the driving thought for us is always, I believe in you. I so believe in you. I'm not looking at you waiting for you to screw up, not thinking, what's the next thing they're going to mess up? No, no, no. I believe in you. I believe in you on, on our team. I believe in my kids. I believe in my spouse. I believe in the people who work with me and that I lead. I believe in you. I believe God called you to this role, and I believe that God is developing you to be the very best at this. That's the driving idea behind the person who leads like Jesus. Are you with me? It's the opposite of driving from fear. It's, it's developing confidence in them. The second contrast is this. Bosses, people with a boss mentality, assign blame, but leaders take responsibility. You ever been around somebody, been in a relationship with somebody, they've, when something's wrong, they've got to figure out who to blame. They have to assign blame. Anybody ever know somebody like that? Oh, that's painful, isn't it? That is miserable. Whatever goes wrong, even if it's clearly about the person in authority, if it's undeniable that they have done something wrong, but they still have got to blame somebody else. Well, the reason I did that was because you did this and made me mad. You upset me. You caused me to do that. So really, you're to blame for what I did. Anybody ever been around that before? Some of us are scared to answer because we're sitting next to the answer to that. I, I get that. I understand. I got to blame you. Let me just tell you this, because some of us are prolific blamers. If you constantly need to blame somebody else for whatever goes wrong, that screams that there is a major flaw in my character, in my leadership capacity that I don't want to address. And I am so afraid to let anybody even get close to putting a finger on that that I've always got to point you, forced it was your fault. You, you made me do that. You, you brought that out in me. You, you upset me. You, it's, it's really you, even though I did it. That's a, that's a flaw with me. Leaders don't fix blame. They fix problems. Bosses like to fix the blame. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, go all out. All the men say, go all out. Go all out in your love for your wives. Let's just pause right there. Married men, when's the last time you went all out in your love for your wife? Come on. When's the last time you went all out? I don't mean just, oh, well, I gave her flowers for Mother's Day. No, when'd you go all out in your love for your wife? Can I give you a challenge? Tomorrow's the first day of July. Why don't you make the month of July all out loving month? Go all out in your love for your wife. Try it on. See where things stand on August 1st. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives. And all the wives said? Oh, that was weak. Good. Nice. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives. There you go. You catching on. Exactly as Christ did for the church. A love not marked by... A love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. Godly love and godly leadership, it always does that. Listen, I, I understand where a lot of our brains are at this point. We're already making excuses, aren't we? Well, I'd be a whole lot more willing to do that. 
if my husband, if my wife would stop being the, the, the low-down sorry fool that they are, if they would be more of this, if they'd be more of that, then I could be that and trust them to do their part. It doesn't work that way. You've got to start with you where you are right now. Husbands, if you don't like some of what you see in your wife, you take the initiative. You lead like Jesus. You love like Jesus. You go all out in your love. Because Jesus' love made his bride whole. You see, we were full of holes, H-O-L-E-S. We are. Just all kinds of defects in our character and our behavior. But Jesus' love brings out the best in us. And it fills in the holes. And we become W-H-O-L-E. His love makes us whole and holy. That's the kind of love that we're called to. A love that goes all out. And Jesus' love is the model where he didn't blame, he accepted responsibility. What did that look like for Jesus? I mean, think about it. When Jesus came in the world, he entered fully into the human experience. Now, he had a pretty good handle on it from heaven. But he fully entered into what we go through. And he would have been well within his rights after 30-something years of doing that if he'd have looked around and said to the Father, we can skip the cross. Ain't no point in it. I've checked it out, and they're all broken. They're all messed up. The mess that they are in, they made it. They're rotten choices. They're selfish. They're cruel. They're unkind. They're unloving. They're in the mess that they're in because they made it. So whatever they get, it's what they had coming. He could have blamed us, and he would have been right on every count. But it's not what he did. He was a true leader. Leaders don't blame. Leaders accept responsibility. What did Jesus actually do? He essentially said, I have seen the mess. I've seen the mess that they've made. And it's true. They have made it. It's bigger than people even realize. But Father, I don't want you to blame them. I want you to place all the responsibility for that squarely on me. Everything negative that they should get, that they could be blamed for, I don't want you to blame them. I want to stand in a position over them so that your wrath is rightly and justly poured out only on me. Because that's what leaders do. That's what loving, godly leaders do. They don't blame. They accept responsibility. Let me tell you what that looks like in just day-to-day terms. It means real leaders, real leaders in the home, in the church, in the workplace. Here's what we don't get to say. I'm just going to, I'm going to use the, the word people as, as my blank and you fill in the blank. When I say people in this statement, you fill in husband or wife or child or, or employee or whatever it is. My people won't ever. My, my people never do. And then just fill in the blank. My wife, she will never, blah, 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 blah. My husband doesn't ever, blah, blah, blah. My kids, they, they won't ever take responsibility. They won't ever work. They will never, ever just accept responsibility to take initiative for anything. That's just how my kids are. That's how my employees are. Leaders never get to say that, ever. Because that's assigning blame. You know what leaders say? I have not yet learned to teach my people this. I have not yet I have not yet taught my children to accept responsibility. I have not yet taught my children to be responsible with money. I have not yet taught my children a strong work ethic. What's the difference between those statements? Well, One batch of statements is all about blaming and accusing, and the other one is saying, I've got a stake in this. We love between husband and wife to say, well, my wife never. My wife never lives up to the things that a man needs from a woman. Instead of saying, you know, if that's how it feels, 
then I must have never created a secure, intimate relationship where my wife feels safe to let down her guard and to consistently want to be intimate with me at every level. Oh, well, it's way easier to be able to accuse my wife of something than it is to own responsibility. Leaders take responsibility. Bosses blame. Thirdly, bosses address shortcomings through threats, attacks, or rejection, but leaders show grace in correction and in dealing with consequences. Paul said in verse 9 of Ephesians 6, Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please, and no threats. He gives similar instruction to the fathers in verse 4 when he says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't wear out your children by coming down hard on them. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Some of us were cursed to have come up with parents or bosses, you know, employers in the past who were verbally abusive, who were verbally cruel, who only knew how to use threats and manipulation. They've never been taught how to lead. And so when that's what's been modeled for us, we just think that's what leadership looks like. And so we've got this thing to overcome, and we've just got to let that go and realize leaders don't function that way. Godly leaders show grace. They're willing to correct, and they're willing in the appropriate times to mete out consequences, but there's always a sense of grace in the doing of those things. That even when you're correcting, you still are making it clear, I value you and I believe in you. And that's why I'm choosing to address this with you, because I believe in you. Now let me say this, because man, we struggle with this immensely, particularly when you think in terms of the parent-child relationships. We, we run to extremes, don't we, when it comes to, to parenting our kids. That you know, You've got homes where parents are, are cruel and downright just abusive, heavy-handed with their kids. And then you've got a multitude of homes where it seems like now the kids, just the inmates are running the asylum. You know, the, the kids just run everything and there's no discipline anymore. And somewhere between those extremes is a healthy balance where we still correct and where we still allow there to be consequences and enforce you know, consequences and boundaries, but where we show love, compassion, and grace while we do those things. And and that doesn't have to be loud and it doesn't have to be threatening and frightening for us to be consistent in doing those things. And one of the things that, and I'm just going to say this and move on, but one of the key things that we've got to make sure that we are always driving home, whether it be with our kids or the people we have to supervise at work, is the fundamental truth that we find throughout the Scriptures, and that is the basic concept that blessing follows obedience and suffering follows disobedience. When we operate within the appropriate boundaries, that there's blessing and reward that accompanies that. And when we get out of bounds, that there's suffering that follows that. I I, I get it that there are times where you do the right thing and you suffer because you did the right thing. I'm not denying that fact. But it is a general principle of life that God put into motion that operating within the boundaries and doing your part of what's expected gets rewarded now in reality sometimes the place you're going to be rewarded is when you get to heaven because you did the right thing and there was an oppressive person or an oppressive circumstance around you and you suffered here and you'll get rewarded in heaven but even here on earth the majority of the time the thing that we want to drive home and reinforce for our kids as well as for those who work with us and that we supervise is you do the right thing you're going to be rewarded it's a basic truth of Scripture, and it's what Paul's pointing to when he says in, uh, in verse, verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 6, Kids, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment that has a promise attached to it, namely, so that you will live well and have a long life. You get that. He's just tying obedience to reward. He said, that this is God who said this. Do the right thing. You're going to get blessed. Do the the converse of that is true. Do the wrong thing, you're going to suffer consequences, and we need to drive that home. I read an article, I don't know, a month or two ago. I shared it with Jackie. It so blew my mind. It was in USA Today. Some of you probably read the same thing. I can't remember the name of the company. Wonder was in the name, but I just can't remember the full name of the company. But 
um, people are just going gaga over this guy whose name I don't even recall, who's the head of the company. He has 17,000 employees and offices located around the globe. And he had just written an essay a month or two ago that got published in USA Today in which he was espousing, just kind of formalizing what his philosophy about how things should operate in the workplace and how it's going to operate at his company. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have chased this rabbit, but I want to share it anyway. And, and in it, he just spells out that in his company and in his world, here's how things work. I just trust my employees, and I believe in my employees. Those are good things to say, good things to, to feel. But he said, to the extent that if it just doesn't work out for you to come in when you're supposed to come in to work in the morning, I don't even need you to tell me. You just come in when you can. And if you need to leave early in the afternoon because your kids have a soccer game, I don't need to know that. Go to the soccer game. And if today you don't even need to come in at all because it's just too stressful for you, you want to just work from home, I don't need to know that. You just work from home. I mean, the whole article is just that. It's just, you just manage yourself. You just do your job the way you want to do it, and I'm good with that, and I'll applaud that. And the world has erupted in applause for this guy. Going, this is awesome. And it's funny because the, the writer for USA Today said it, it is amazing that young adults, basically the millennial generation, are standing in line by the thousands wanting to go to work for this guy. And I'm thinking, is every generation not standing in line to work for this guy? I mean, are we surprised by that? And I'm thinking, I appreciate the guy's heart in this. But I'm thinking, he's doing a disservice to his employees to think that everybody can be self-managed. Part of what goes with the responsibility of being in a leadership role is that you still have to establish what the boundaries are because everybody's not capable of self-management. You're going to have to say, these are the boundary lines and these are the consequences when you violate the boundary lines. I, I told Jackie, I'm like, I wish that they'd had to do a follow-up article in five or ten years to say, how's the company doing with their new policies now? How's that working out? Because there have to be boundaries. There have to be consequences. You have to reward those who do what they're supposed to and let there be consequences for those who don't. But you don't use threats, attacks, and rejection in that. Fourth. Uh, the fourth contrast is this. Bosses, people with a boss mentality, demand respect, but leaders extend trust. Bosses demand respect, but leaders extend trust. Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, in John 15, verse 16, he said to the 11 remaining of the 12, You did not choose me. I chose you. And I gave you this work to go and produce fruit, fruit that will last. And then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, has there ever been a leader who deserved respect more than Jesus? I mean, if Jesus had said every single day that the disciples were with him, you better respect me and you better listen to me. You, you better take a knee in front of me in, in honor and worship. He'd have been right on the money to do that, and he never did. He just treated all of the disciples as his colleagues. He didn't demand respect. Instead, he extended trust. I mean, have you ever just stopped to think the level of trust that Jesus had in the twelve? I mean, what's the thing that he's handing off to them? He says, I'm, I'm sending you out to go and bear fruit. Well, what's the fruit that he's talking about? The, the mission at hand is to save the world. I mean, you, you get it. If the disciples fail, we go to hell across the board. Jesus did three and a half years of public ministry. He did the key work that needed to be done. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. But taking the message of the kingdom to the world, taking the gospel to the world. It is all handed off to the disciples. Has there ever been a more trusting handoff of the baton than what Jesus did right here? The fate of the entire planet rests with you 11 people. Wow. But that's what leaders do. They don't say, it's all, all about me. I'm going to have to be the one that does it all. No, no, no. no. I'm not trying to tell you how much you should respect me. I'm trying to tell you how much I trust you that I'm going to hand this off to you. That's what leaders will do. So 
let's be clear about this. There, there is a wrong message that most of us have heard a bunch of times in our lives, and we need to blow this one up. The wrong message, you'll see this in your outline, is trust must be earned and is easily lost. How many of you somewhere in your life have heard the line, trust has to be earned? Let me see your hands. Everybody. Everybody's heard that. You've got to earn my trust. That's actually not a healthy message. It's okay if you push back against this. I want you to wrestle with this one. See if this isn't a much better message. Mistrust is earned. Trust is extended because I believe in you. You see, that's based on grace. Grace says because I believe in you and because I love you, I choose to trust you. You don't have to earn my trust first. What you'll have to do is earn my distrust by violating my trust again and again. Trust is something that we should choose to give because we're people of, of love, compassion, and grace. So I'm going to give you trust. You'd have to earn distrust. This is what leaders do. I mean, Jesus, based on the three and a half years that we get little glimpses of in the Gospels, and bear in mind, it's the... It's the apostles who are either writing or telling the story that's recorded in the Gospels. So you would think they'd at least kind of cover up some of their own worst failings. And based on what they're willing to report, they look like bumbling idiots half the time, don't they? I mean, they, they just they don't know what they're doing. They can't solve problems. They're, you know, Jesus, what do we do? The guy, his son, still rolls around and throws himself in the fire. We thought we could fix it, but we can't. And now there's all this stink. What do we do? Over and over, they don't know what to do. And Jesus is still willing to hand off to them. I still trust you that when it's all said and done, you're going to be the ones that are going to, God's going to use to work this out. I choose to believe in you. Fifth contrast, maybe this is the most important one. Bosses control people, but leaders empower people. Bosses control people, leaders empower people. In Luke 9, verses 1 and 2, it's one of multiple times that Jesus sends out his followers two by two, and he does not go with them. We're familiar with this if you grew up in church, but I want you to let the weight of that sink in on you. Luke 9, 1 and 2. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority. Say that with me. Power and authority. What do leaders do? Leaders empower people. Jesus gave these guys who've been stumbling and fumbling around, he gave them power and authority. Is it just a little bit? Nope. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Have you ever thought about what a scary thing this is? I mean, first of all, they hadn't been together that long. But Jesus is the one who's been doing all the preaching. Jesus is the one who's been doing the healing and the casting out of demons. And the apostles are the ones going, Oh, did you see that? That was cool. That was wild. But Jesus is the one doing it. And Jesus says, Okay, guys, today we're moving to the next phase. Pair off. And I'm going to send you, all of you, to different towns, different villages. And all I want you to do is just heal the sick people, cure the people who, who uh, have, free the people who have any kind of demons, and you do the preaching. You usher in the kingdom by declaring the message of the kingdom of God. That's all you've got to do. Now, ready, set, go. Can't you just picture them looking at each other like, He wants us to do what? Where are you going to be, Jesus. Well, here's what you can know about that. I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going. You go and do it. Wow. Only a leader would do that. You see, the thing that Jesus understood is, this is the only way the kingdom of God is going to come on earth, is that we have to be empowered and we have to do the same things that he did. That's still the story 2,000 years later. Now, Jesus would have been probably manifesting the way that a lot of us tend to think had he said, guys, I would love to send you out to do what I've been doing, but I've been watching you, and I'm pretty sure you're going to screw it up. I mean, Peter, you like to talk, but you trip over your own tongue half the time. 
I mean, you, you speak up, but then what you say sometimes is just goofy. I mean, sometimes I feel more like you're the devil than, than one of my followers. That's why he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God when Peter's trying to speak up. You're probably going to mess this up, guys. We'd all said, you're probably right. Can you imagine how many situations those guys got into that they said the wrong thing? That they did the wrong thing? How did Jesus do it? Did he do it like Ernest Angley? Bam! You know, what, what was Jesus? Talking? How many times did they run into stuff that they just that they probably didn't get it quite right? And Jesus empowered them and trusted them to work through it. And at times to learn to go. You know what? We haven't helped you one bit, but we're going to take you with us when we go back and find Jesus, and we're going to find out what Jesus wants us to do. And Jesus goes, "This kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. You guys have skipped a step." Oh. We didn't realize that. You see, that's, that's what real leaders do. But it feels so much better to control, doesn't it? To just control what goes on and to micromanage. Here's what we've got to know. Controlling people always limits their progress. You can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. That needs to sink in. For how some of us do husband-wife relationships and how we do parenting relationships and how we supervise people at work. You can have control or you can have growth in the person that you lead, but you can't have both. Easy illustration of that. How many of you have had to teach your child or grandchild or niece or nephew how to drive a car? Let me see your hands. How many of you have had that? Yeah, that'll stretch your faith, won't it? Woo! That first day is scary. Now, there is a phase in learning to drive a car where you take a book and you learn what's in the book. You learn the signs, you learn the rules of the road, and there's a phase where you ride, where the, the, the new driver rides in the passenger seat, and for the first time they stop just acting like a passenger and they become a student of the driver. Pay attention now. Get off your phone. Watch me. Watch Watch where I'm looking. You see I'm checking my mirrors. You, you see where my eyes are. You see what I'm doing. You see I only use one foot. You don't use two feet. You don't have a foot on the brake and a foot on the gas. Watch what I'm doing. But all of those things rolled together can only take you so far in learning to be a good driver, right? There's only one way to actually learn to be a driver. You've got to change seats. Such a scary day. You give them the key, you let their hands get on the steering wheel, their feet on the pedals, and you just start praying. Jesus, if you were thinking about coming back soon, today would be a great day. You just pray. No, you, you get in the other seat. You give them the opportunity to do it right or to mess up. You don't have control anymore. You're with them, but you empower them. Empowering leaders don't just give people tasks, they give them responsibility. Because tasks just teach people to do what we say, while responsibility teaches them to lead others. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. As a parent with kids, it's easy enough, and it's actually simpler, to say, I want you to go feed the dog. I want you to go cut the grass today and blow off the driveway when you're done. That's a task. And many of us have parented that way. We parent by assigning tasks. You do what I say, and we'll measure whether you're being a good kid by whether you did the assigned task today. A better way of helping them to grow is by giving them responsibility. A way that you give responsibility in those areas is your kid comes to you, can we get a dog? I want a dog. I want a dog. If we get a dog, it's going to be your dog. It's going to be your responsibility. And that means... That every morning when you get up and you're getting ready for school, you're going to take the dog out to the bathroom and it's your job to make sure they've got food and water for the day. And when you come back from school, from the time you come home until you go to bed, it's your job to make sure you take them out to the bathroom at least a couple of times, check their food and water. That's your responsibility. I'm not going to remind you every day, but that's yours. Your responsibility. If we're going to have a dog, you have to do those things. Instead of saying, you go cut the grass today and blow off the driveway to say, you know what, this summer while you're out of school, our yard is your responsibility. And here's the deal. That means when the grass needs cutting, you cut it, you edge it, and you blow off the driveway. And if you do that, 
I'm actually going to pay you for doing that because I also want you to learn the responsibility of managing money, tithing, saving, doing those kinds of things. I want you to learn responsibility. But here's the catch. This is your responsibility. You do what you're responsible for, and I'll pay you each time. But if you don't, every time I have to tell you to cut the grass, you'll still do the same work, but you won't get paid for that. You see, there's consequences. There's reward for obedience. There's consequence for disobedience. But how big of a difference is there between saying, go cut the grass today versus the yard is your responsibility. And it's your responsibility every day. You look at the yard every day. You see when it needs to be taken care of. Responsibility will teach us how to lead in the future. We've got to think in those terms, especially as parents. The sixth and final thing that I'll mention is this. People with a boss mentality tend to be guarded, but godly leaders are transparent. Bosses seldom want to admit their weaknesses, and so they tend to be more distant, and they want to do their best to control perception. And I hate to say this, but it's the truth. I can't think of any group who more consistently does this than pastors. Pastors are scared to death as a group to be transparent, vulnerable, and honest. Pastors think our people expect more of us so they need to see us getting it right and always doing the right thing. And because they know in themselves that they're not always right and they don't always have the answers and they don't always do the correct thing, then the best thing to do is to just keep some distance and to sort of manage perception. I'm going to limit how much you know about me. Well, that's a boss mentality. People who lead like Jesus allow themselves to be open and transparent. Jesus said in, in John fifteen fifteen, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know what their master's doing. But now I call you friends because I have told you everything. I think sometimes as husbands or wives and definitely as parents, we feel like we're supposed to know how to do everything. We feel like, oh, I, I need to look like I've always got the answers, that my, my mate can always know. I've, I've, I've got it figured out. I've got the solution that my kids always know. I, I've got the answer to everything. And the truth of the matter is you don't. I don't. As your pastor, I don't always have the answers. I don't always have the answers in my marriage or for my kids. I just don't always have the answers, and you don't either. And it's actually a relief for those that we lead to hear us acknowledge, I don't have the answers. I don't have them all, and I don't always get it right. By the way, they figured that out a while back. They know that about us. It's just a relief for them to hear us be honest enough to go, I don't always know. No one expects you to be perfect, and they like it when we admit that we're not. People would far rather follow a leader who is always real than one who is always right. Wouldn't you agree with that? I'd far rather follow a leader who's always real than who is always right or thinks they're always right. People will admire our strengths, but they will be drawn to our weaknesses. They will relate to our weaknesses. So be yourself. Be real. Now, here's my concern for us today. I suspect on almost every point, you could nod and agree and say, yep, that's true, that's true, that's right, I believe that. But when it's all said and done, here's what I think we're going to be most tempted to do today. is to just say, yeah, I know I ought to be more like that, but it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. You know, I just am what I am, and I just, I just do what I do. That doesn't ever cut it with God. God is absolutely committed to making Jesus over in us. And that means if our leadership doesn't look much like Jesus' leadership, he plans to tackle that item by item. And if you listen to that list and said, Whew, boy, on several of those things, I look more like a boss than a leader. Because I like to control. And I like to get loud, and I like to you know, be noisy, or like, whatever. I, I just look more like the boss. It's not okay to say, well, that's just the way I am. Thankfully, God just loves me. He does love you. He loves me just as broken as I am. And on some of those points, I look more like a boss than a leader. But here's the thing. I am committed to firing the boss in me. 
and letting Jesus teach me how to lead. And every one of us have got to do that. Otherwise, you're going to have a lousy marriage. And your kids are going to have struggles because they saw something that didn't look much like Jesus leading them. And nobody's going to work with you or under you in the church or in the workplace. We've got to learn to lead like Jesus. So here's my question for you. When you look down the list, where do you see the biggest deficit? Where do you see the worst case of, ooh, I am a boss in that regard? And are you willing to say, God, I need your help. I, I confess this for what it is, and I need your help to learn to lead like Jesus. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? Lord, we acknowledge our own powerlessness. We can't fix what's broken in us. And so many of the things that, that don't look like Jesus, that have tripped up our marriages, they've tripped up our romantic relationships, they've... They've damaged our children. They've hurt people around us in the church or in the workplace. But even when we see it for what it is, we can't fix it. And so we just look to you and say, Oh God, have mercy on us. Would you please forgive us? And would you give us the grace to, to believe you to do a fresh work in us? Where we've been controlling, would you teach us to be trusting and to, to give away trust and responsibility. Where we've been less than a picture of Jesus in our marriage with our kids, with our brothers and sisters in the church or in the workplace, God, would you teach us to lead like Jesus? For some who maybe, it may be that today it just clicked for the first time fully for you. Just what Jesus has done for you. The, the responsibility that Jesus has taken for you. That he didn't blame you. He didn't blame me. And that he's made forgiveness available. Maybe today for the first time in your heart and mind it has clicked. And it's just time for you to receive that. So that his life can begin to fill you and change you. If that's where you are, would you just pray a simple prayer that is just a response of faith. That says... You can say this from just, this, just the quietness of your heart. Jesus, I believe in you and what you've done for me. I know you died in my place. You took responsibility for my sins. And now you entrust your power and life to me. I receive that by faith. I accept your forgiveness. And I ask you to now live in me. Thank you for loving and forgiving me. God, I pray that you would live your life in us, that you would seal this moment with your Holy Spirit as we choose to trust and follow you together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.